I see some familiar faces and I see ones that I don't know. Uh, I just thought I would just tell you really briefly what's been going on with us since we left in 2006. Can you believe it was that long ago? 2006. So uh, that's obviously 17 years ago. So that's a lot of time has happened since uh, today. So in 2007, I started in a new church in Ajax, and we were there for a number of years. And during that time, we adopted our first daughter, Faith. And yesterday, she turned 15. That's pretty cool, eh? <laughs> yeah, you can clap. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> And then we moved on and we went to a church in, in Mississauga and we were there for eight years. And during that time, we adopted our second child and his name is Sean. And he did not turn 15 yesterday. He is 13 years old, so yeah. That's funny that you clapped about that one. <laughs> so, but what, what happened was, is God called me to different churches throughout my, that 17 years, and then eventually we ended up at Grandview, which is just down the road, and I, I know you probably know and love the people at Grandview, and so I just wanted to say welcome from Grandview to each one of you, and just to say thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I just thought what I would do is, let, let's just open our word of prayer, and then we'll get into God's word. Father, we thank you that you are here in our presence and we thank you that you have given uh, me a word to say this morning. Your word is very important and we live by it and we want to be honored, we want to honor you with what is being said this morning. I pray that you would speak through me as has already been prayed uh, and that the words that I say would be honoring to you and not to myself or anybody else. And I pray these things in your son's name, amen. So I have, I, want to, I have a question for you. Have you ever experienced a random act of kindness? Put up your hand if you've ever experienced a random act of kindness. Okay, so quite a few of you have. I have as well. As a matter of fact, let me tell you, in 1989, I was at the end of my Bible school years, and I was just about to graduate, and something happened that was unusual and I didn't expect it and I would never have expected it. Basically what happened was is the year, the summer before, I actually was, I decided to work at a church instead of work at a real job. Uh, you can laugh about that, that's fine. Uh, and the reason why that's so significant is because while I was working at this church, I knew that there was no paycheck at the end of the summer. Okay, and as you probably figured out, is my last year of school, I needed to pay for it somehow, right? Uh, and so, which was really nice, the church did give me a love gift, which was nice to have that gift to take with me to help pay for my schooling, but it didn't pay for all of my schooling. Whereas all the other years before that, in the summers before each year, I would work at a, a shop, a, a garage, and I made lots of money so I could pay for my schooling every single year but not this year. And so I was coming to the end of my year and I was going to graduate and I was just about to write my exams and I got a note from the dean saying to me that if you don't pay your final semester, you can't graduate. That was hard. I didn't know what to do with all that. So I just left it before the Lord and I told lots of people to pray for me and they did. But the amazing thing was is three days God loves to, he loves to get you thinking that 
nothing's gonna happen. And, he's, and he, he wants you to be on the edge of your seat. And he says, three days before I was to write my exams, I got a note in my mailbox. And it basically said, from an anonymous donor, your whole semester has been paid off. When you hear that, you probably think, wow, random act of kindness. Isn't that amazing? I, and to this day, I have no idea who paid it. Nobody ever said to me, I want you to know, you know, back then, a couple of years ago, I actually took care of that bill for you. Nobody has ever told me what it was. But when you hear that, you think random act of kindness, right? Or, more importantly, you think, that person was a good Samaritan. The unfortunate thing is, is what we do is, especially uh, as Christians, is we automatically think random act of kindness is actually equals good Samaritan. But what I wanna do today is I wanna help you to understand that that's not true. We're gonna study the parable of the good Samaritan this morning. And we're gonna look at what Jesus teaches us about the parable. But more importantly, we're gonna talk about the whole surrounding verses around the parable. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And when you Google the word or this term uh, Good Samaritan, do you know that there's all kinds of stories about all kinds of amazing things that people have done in the, in the name of being a Good Samaritan? As a matter of fact, you'll find different organizations, different hospitals, even companies that are called Good Samaritans. And the reason is, is because for whatever reason, people have just decided that a random act of kindness is being a good Samaritan. But Jesus is gonna teach us differently. It's important to read this parable within the context of the whole chapter. It's so easy for us, and, and maybe you've even done this yourself, is just to read the parable and to forget why Jesus even wrote the, or why he even told the parable in the first place. And we will get to that in a few minutes. But I want, to, I want to look at the whole passage together. So we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 37. And so as I read this, I want us to just stop and just look at what Jesus is saying throughout this whole passage. So let's get started. Uh, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? Now, an expert in the law, just so you know, is not just simply a lawyer, because most people think that this is a person who knows the law really well, but actually the law is actually considered to be the first five books of the Old Testament, sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch or even referred to as the, the books of Moses. So he wasn't just a lawyer, he was also a theologian, so he knew his Bible very well, at least the first five books of the Bible. And you'll notice that he stood up, but he didn't stand up in respect, because most of the time when you stand up and you ask someone a question, you're looking for the, the, uh, the knowledge of the person who's going to speak. But he stood up, and he didn't do it for respect at all. He did it because he wanted to test Jesus. He had ulterior motives behind why he was even asking Jesus this important question. And it was an important question but he wasn't doing it to find out what the knowledge of this master teacher was. He did it because he wanted to somehow catch him giving the wrong answer so that he could make Jesus look stupid. And as you probably know, there are many passages in the Gospels where people did this, especially the religious leaders to Jesus. And what did he ask? He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
It's almost like the man was assuming that there were certain things that I could do in order to get eternal life. It's almost like, here is the, here's the list of things that I should be doing in order to get eternal life. But as you both, as we all know, is you don't earn an inheritance, it's a gift. So then Jesus replied to the man, because he, all knew, he knew the man had ulterior motives, he answered him with a question. Don't you hate it when somebody does that? It's like you ask a question and what do they do? They ask you another question. But Jesus didn't just ask one question, he asked two questions. And he said, what is written in the law? So then he paused and then he says, how do you read it? Okay, here's what Jesus really said. He says, you're the expert in the law. You know the law way better than I do. At least that's what I believe you do. Then I would like to hear, what do you think? Jesus flips around this whole testing thing. This man wanted to test Jesus. That's what, the whole reason why he asked the question. And he flipped it around and he said, he says, now I'm going to test you. Verse 27. He answered, Love the Lord your God. This is the expert in the law's answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, everybody that was a Jew, especially if they were, if they were a theologian or a lawyer of those days, they knew that that was the answer to that question. As a matter of fact, he is quoting two verses in, uh, in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19.18. The expert in the law was so wise when it came to the, the requirements of the law, but he had so much more to learn and Jesus was gonna do that to him right now. What Jesus says in response is, you have answered correctly. Of course, the lawyer is feeling, ah, I'm so good, I, I got this all right. And then he says, now do this and you will live. In other words, Jesus says, yeah, you got it right. Now, go and live like this so that you will receive eternal life. Can you hear the sarcasm in Jesus' voice in what he just said there? He said, you figured it out. You got it right. Anyone who meets such standards doesn't need grace. All they need to do is do a whole bunch of different things to inherit eternal life that's what you must do. Now go ahead and do this and you will live. Now, of course, Jesus didn't mean what he said there. He didn't mean that at all. As a matter of fact, it was completely sarcastic. If this was true, which of course it's not, and that's the only way that we inherit eternal life, then each one of us here on this earth are condemned. Why? Because Romans, Romans 3.23 says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't live up to these standards. No matter how hard we try, we'll always fall short of the glory of God. But we already know that that is not the case. We already know that scripture tells us clearly how we will receive eternal life. These are all verses that you know and understand, but let me just read them for you. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's the gift of God. Number one, 
Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then of course, John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is not telling the man, if you love God and love your neighbor as yourself, which was his answer, you will have eternal life. No, no, he wanted the man to realize that if you do these things in perfection, then it is impossible for you to actually not get into heaven. But the truth is, and he knew this and the man knew it, is that he could not do these things in perfection. He knew that it was impossible for me to do these things in perfection because we're all sinners, Romans 3.23. If we really understand the law, it exposes our sin. We seek, we would know we can't work our way to heaven by our good deeds. So it should drive us to seek the one who can give us eternal life, which of course is Jesus Christ himself. Now, I don't know everyone here today, so I just thought I would just throw this out at you. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've never actually done this. Maybe you've been hearing the gospel for many years or maybe even this is the first time you've ever heard it. But Paul says in Romans 10, verses nine to 10, he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. In other words, you can ask Jesus to come into your life today if you've never done that. Because of his death and his resurrection, your sins are forgiven and you receive a gift of eternal life if you accept him into your life today. All you have to do is repent of your sins and ask Jesus to forgive your sins and believe and he will forgive you. So if you've never done that today, it's as simple as that. I wanted to share that with you because I really believe that as Jesus was talking to this expert in the law, he really wanted to understand the truth of salvation, the truth of the gospel. And of course, the expert in the law, even though he knew a lot of things in his head, he didn't understand them in his heart. Let's keep going, verse 29. The lawyer understood that Jesus was being very sarcastic when he spoke. And he was hoping to trip up Jesus, but of course, he was caught in his own trap. So in order to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, all he wanted to do was to justify his belief about who his neighbor was. As a matter of fact, he believed that the only people that were important was a certain group of people, and he should love them, and he should despise everybody else. And so he wanted to be justified in what he believed and that was that he lo- she should love a select few of people and the rest didn't matter. And that's what he believed. And so what he wanted to do was, again, he wanted to see if he could justify himself by asking Jesus another question. A totally different question, but another question. And that was, is who is my neighbor? Again, Jesus doesn't answer his question. What does he do? He tells him a story. And this is a story that is very well known and there are even unbelievers that know this story, but I wanna go through this story with you. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's look at verses 30 to 35 together. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
It's very important as you look at this story that you understand that this man is unrecognizable. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even speak. And that is very important to understand is that this man actually doesn't even have a name. It all, all it says is it's a man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So the reason why Jesus does this is because, first of all, the man is half dead. So in other words, he can't speak, so nobody can actually figure out where he's from. Secondly, he's stripped of his clothes, so his clothing, which in those days, actually showed where you were from. And of course, the way you spoke showed where you're from, from your accent. So both of those things were taken away from this man, so he was unrecognizable. He could be anyone. This is very significant in light of the expert's question and his motive behind the question, who is my neighbor? Now the man was going down, which is also very realistic and makes sense because the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was literally a road that went downhill. It was a 3,000 foot drop and a 17 mile long road with dangerous terrain. The second thing that Jesus mentions is that he was attacked by robbers. This also is very realistic. And the reason why this is important when Jesus is telling this story is because when you tell a story in those days, there needed to be something that was very realistic and it made sense to the person who was listening to it. And in those days, in, on that particular road that Jesus was referring to, it was a very dangerous road. As a matter of fact, there were caves all along the road where bandits and robbers would hide out. And as people passed by, they would attack them and they would steal the things from them. This road was a very dangerous road. It's very important that as we look at this story, as we understand that what the expert in the law is hearing is it makes sense to him. Let's keep going. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest is a very important person in those days. He had very important responsibilities in the temple. And priests, what they would do is they would work for two weeks in, the, in Jerusalem, and then they would head home for a week to take a break. And then they would do it again and they would do it again, and they'd do it again. And so, of course, that means that this man was on his way home. So the priest was on his way home. And so he had just spent two weeks in the temple, working really hard, doing everything he can, and now he was on his way home. Probably his home was in Jericho, or somewhere on the road to Jericho. And so he was on his way home. So he's looking forward to break for rest. Now, I've had lots of people ask me, why do you think the very most important person in this story actually passed by the man who was beaten? Why did he pass by on the other side? There's lots of speculations, but I think the biggest, most uh, obvious reason is that the man, the priest, didn't know whether the man was actually dead or just beaten to being half dead. And so if the man was, if the man that was beaten up was actually dead and the priest touched him, he would become ceremonially unclean. And what did that mean? That meant another week back in Jerusalem where he'd actually have to go through a whole process of being cleaned up. And then for that reason, the man, the priest, 
walked on the other side of the road. He didn't even walk by him. He literally went right around him so that he wouldn't even go near him because he knew that that meant that he would actually not be able to see his family for another two weeks. That's what the speculation is. Verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now a Levite also helped in the temple, uh, but he wasn't as important as the priest, uh, and he didn't have the responsibilities of the priest, but most people say the reason why he passed by on the other side was because of the same reason, because there's a possibility that he also could be contaminated by this dead body. This is terrible, isn't it? These are two religious leaders that could easily have helped this man, but they chose to pass by on the other side. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. I don't know if you guys know or not, but the expert in the law cringed when he heard that the third person, which happens to be the hero of the story, was a Samaritan. He would have preferred to be anybody else other than a Samaritan. And maybe you already know this, but Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews in those days. Now, why was that? Well, to Jews, Samaritans were thought to be an unclean, impure race. And here's the reason why. When the Israelites left the promised land, uh, sorry, left, they came to the promised land from, Jer from Egypt, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel settled in the region of Samaria. And then what happened was in 722 BC, Samaria conquered Assyria. And when they conquered Assyria, the Jewish people were taken into captivity. And when they were taken into captivity, while they were there, they intermarried with pagans and Gentiles. And of course, what happened was that they created a half-breed race called Samaritans. Half Jews, half pagans, half Gentiles, half everything. And the Jews hated that. But there was even one more thing that they hated. And that was that the Samaritans, this half-breed, decided to set up their own competing temple system that was not in Jerusalem. So the Jewish people from Judea hated the Samaritans. And vice versa, the Samaritans hated the Jews. So when the expert in the law heard that the hero of this story was somebody he hated, he cringed. Now let me put this in a modern context for you. The first man, the priest, was a Baptist pastor, okay? Let's just say he's Pastor RJ, okay? <laughs> the second man was a Levite. I'm almost positive, but I'm not sure. Are you an elder? Deacon, okay. So, Steve, right? Rick, sorry, Rick. I recognize the beard for some reason. Rick, so Rick is the second person, okay? And the last person in this story is a terrorist. 
Doesn't that make you cringe? The hero of the story is somebody who does terrible things to terrible people. That's exactly how the expert in the law felt when he heard this story. It was this, he had this feeling of, it could be anybody else. I would have been very, I would be happy if it was anybody else, but the hero of the story was somebody who I hated. He was my enemy. Now Jesus completes his story. He's done now. He's done telling his story. And he asks one final question. Again, he's still not answered this expert in the law's question or any of his questions, but he asks one question. He asks finally one question. He says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law was more concerned about who his neighbor was, and Jesus was saying, you're asking the wrong question. You've been asking the wrong question the whole time we've been talking, and I want to tell you, here is the right question. How can I be a neighbor? That's the right question. Verse 37. The expert finally answers Jesus' question, but he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy on him. What does Jesus say? Almost right away, as soon as the man answers the question, Jesus says, go and do likewise. In other words, go and do the same thing. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Jesus made the expert realize it isn't important who your neighbor is, but it's more important you choose to be a neighbor to anyone in need. That's really the point of his parable. No matter their nationality, their status in life, whether they are a believer or not, what they have done or haven't done to you, no matter how great or small their need is, no, no, no matter why they're where they are, we are called to be neighbors to everyone in need. That was the point that Jesus was making when he told this story. The story of the Good Samaritan gives us three examples of what kind of neighbor we should be to those in need. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today is what is the kind of neighbor that you are? Who are you? What kind of neighbor are you? And I want to talk about three things. The first one is, is that this Samaritan was a perceptive neighbor, Look at the very first part of verse 33. He saw the wounded man in need and he chose to go over to him. Now, I know as you hear this, you're thinking, this is so obvious. Why would this be important? Well, if you think about it, is if he didn't see the man and he didn't actually go over to take care of his need, like the rest of the two characters in this story, then this man would never actually have been helped. So this is a very important point. If you're a perceptive neighbor, you see someone in need and you actually go and you help them. How many times have you seen someone who appears to be in need on the side of a road or maybe at an intersection with a sign, maybe a homeless person that you walk by every day? How many times have you walked by them and never done anything for them? How many times have you seen someone in need and you know they're in need, but you're in a hurry? You've got all kinds of excuses. I'm in a hurry, or I don't have time, or maybe he's going to scam me, or, or maybe it's their fault why they're there that they're begging. Our, there's all kinds of reasons why we don't help people in need. 
when we see someone in need, our job is not to find out why they got there and, and to condemn them for the reason why they're there. No, our job is to love them and care for them as Christ would care for them. That person is my neighbor. Isn't that crazy to think of that? But that person is my neighbor. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as Jesus would. I need to see them as Jesus sees them. I need to care for them as Jesus cares for them. My challenge for you today, and, and maybe you're already doing this, but this is my challenge for you, is to not look the other way, which is what we typically do. Even as Christians, we typically look the other way when we see somebody in need. Open your eyes, open your ears for those in need and choose to help them. Now you might be saying, well, what if they scam me? Well, you know what? What you can do is you can choose to help them in a way that maybe they won't scam you. What I do is in my car, I have a whole bunch of gift cards for Tim Hortons. And when I see someone in need, I'll roll down my window and I'll say, hey, it's not cash, but it's, it's $5 on the Tim's card. Maybe you can go get a, a sandwich or something. What we need to do is we need to actually help people in need, even if we don't know why they're there. But we need to choose to help. Another way that you can help, and this is really important because remember, you're being a perceptive neighbor, is to make the pastors of Crestwick know when someone is in need, not just at Crestwick, but also in your community. Because I can tell you right now, Pastor Sam and Pastor RJ would love to know when someone's in need. And you know what the truth is, is if you don't tell them, they won't know. It's amazing how many people believe that pastors can read your mind. It really is. It's amazing. But the truth is, is if you don't tell us, we won't know, and then we won't be able to go and help those people. Am I right? That leads me to my next point. And that is, is that not only do we need to be a perceptive neighbor, but we also need to be a compassionate neighbor. Look at the rest of verse 33. Not only did the Samaritan see the man, but he took pity on him. And I need you to understand that this is not pity like you typically understand pity. This is the original meaning of the word pity is to have compassion. It's to feel compassion for someone in need. And that's exactly how the Samaritan felt. He felt compassion for this wounded man. He saw this man half dead with no clothes on and he wanted to help him. So he felt compassion for him. He was willing to put himself in that wounded man's shoes and ask, how would I want someone to treat me if I were in this man's situation? When you truly have compassion for someone, you understand what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, which happens to be the answer to Jesus' question from the expert in the law. It's one thing to see someone in need. It's another one to feel compassion for them. So we can see the need, which we do that when we see somebody on the side of the road, right? Or in the intersection, but it's to have compassion for them and to feel compassion that leads us to doing something for them. Now, how can you be a compassionate neighbor today? How can all of you be a compassionate neighbor today? Well, I think the biggest way that you can be compassionate is to pray. That's the one thing we all can do. Old, young, new, it doesn't matter whether you're a new believer, old believer, it doesn't matter, is we can all pray. When you truly have compassion for someone in need, it leads you to your knees to pray. And in this parable, the good Samaritan's compassion led him to doing something wonderful. 
As a matter of fact, that is my final point, is not only do you need to be a perceptive neighbor and a compassionate neighbor, but you also need to be a selfless neighbor. Look at verses 34 to 35. After the Samaritan saw the man in need, he felt compassion for him, and it led him to doing great things for him. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He says, it, James is saying, he says, is, it's not good enough to just have pity for them or to have compassion for the person in need and just say, oh, I hope you find a place to stay and I hope you find some food to eat and do nothing. What we need to do is we need to do something. Whatever that is, we need to do it. And the Good Samaritan does exactly that. As a matter of fact, he was a selfless neighbor, which is what I believe God is calling us to be today. There are four ways that the Samaritan was a selfless neighbor. Look at this. He was willing to be inconvenienced. Now, I'm sure you probably know this by now, but as he's going through, as we go through this story, you can see that the Samaritan is on the same trip that both of the other two men, the priests and the Levites, are on. And he is traveling to Jericho. Well, of course, he comes along and sees this man who's wounded, and his plan was not to stop and help this man, but of course, his plans changed. He stopped, he came to where the man was, like the other travelers. This wasn't his plan. He didn't choose to do this, but he was willing to inconvenience himself to stop and help the wounded man. So he was willing to be inconvenienced in the time that it took him to get to Jericho. Number two, he was willing to give of his time. Look at all the things the Samaritan did for this wounded man. He poured oil and wine on his wounds. He bandaged his wounds. He put the man on his donkey, which meant that he would have to walk alongside of his donkey. It doesn't say in the story how far away the inn was from where the man was. Whether it was nearby or far away, it was still a trip. But even after he took that journey, they eventually got to an inn, and of course, he spent the time with the Samaritan overnight to bandage his wounds and to care for him. All of this took time. This was not time that the Samaritan had actually chosen or had planned, I should say. He put aside all of his plans to take care of this man, and he planned to come back. This is the best part. He planned to come back to the inn, which we don't even know whether or not he actually got to Jericho. He came back to the inn to take care of the outstanding bill that the man could have possibly ran up while he was staying at the inn. He was willing to give of his time. He was willing to give of his resources, and this is the one that we all see right away, don't we? Because not only did he use his own wine and his own uh, oil and possibly his own clothing as bandages, because nobody carries bandages, right? So he probably ripped pieces off of his own clothing and he covered the wounds with, his, with his, these bandages. He spent his own money for the hotel room. He stayed that night, which also was uh, a cost as well. And then the next day, he took out two denarii. Just so you know, two denarii is considered to be Tuesday's wages in those days. So that would pay for about two to three weeks of stay for this wounded man. And then the Samaritan said to the innkeeper, he says, you take care of him, 
And while he is being taken care of, take care, make sure you calculate the bill. I want to make sure I know exactly how much it is because I'm going to come back and I'm going to pay for the rest of the bill. These are all of his resources and he was willing to take all of his resources and help this man. He was a selfless neighbor. The last one was probably the most unusual and most people wouldn't have expected this, but he was willing to risk his life. Think about it for a second. He was on the road to Jericho, which was one of the most dangerous roads in that area, and he knew there was a possibility that he could also have been beaten up and all of his things could have been stolen, just like the man that he was helping, but he chose to help the man anyway. Instead of asking himself, what would happen to me if I helped this man, he actually asked, what will happen to this man if I don't help him? Isn't that a great question to ask? You see someone in need and you ask, what will happen to this man or this woman if I don't help them? Being a good Samaritan is choosing to be a neighbor to someone in need. It's much more than a random act of kindness. The Samaritan chose to be inconvenienced, give of his time, give of his resources, and even risk his own life so that this man could be taken care of. I want to close by telling you a story, not a story that Jesus told, so it won't be as good as Jesus's, but I want to tell you a story of my life. Over 10 years ago, which seems like a long time ago, but not 17 years ago, uh, <laughs> something happened to me that changed my life forever. I remember the whole experience like it was yesterday, and I know my wife does as well. It was a very bad snowstorm in February. It doesn't sound like I'm going to tell like a fantastic, amazing story. It's a bad snowstorm in February. And I had just shoveled the driveway twice before driving the kids to daycare, which, of course, you know, they were pretty young, four and five. And I had three episodes while I was driving the kids to daycare where I had sharp pains in my chest. Then when I finally got to the daycare, thankfully, the manager of the daycare saw that I was in distress, and she called 911, and then I collapsed in her office. The next thing I remember is I'm opening my eyes, and in my face was a fireman's helmet, face, whatever, asking me questions about who I was. I, I still can't believe that what had happened to me was I had had a heart attack. So 10 years ago, our lives changed as a family. I was rushed to the hospital, and while I was there, they told me that I had had a heart attack and they were going to keep me for a number of days until I had a surgery. And so a few days later, I had a procedure called an angioplasty, where they put stents in your arteries. And then for the next three months, I started a re my rehab and re a recovery process that took what seemed like forever. Because if you're a pastor, which I am, you miss the people that you care for. And especially in my role as the pastor of care at City Center, I missed caring for people. But what was amazing was, is we as a family experienced what it was to have people who were selfless neighbors. For the very first time in all of our lives, as a couple and as a family, we experienced firsthand what it meant to have selfless neighbors. 
And I'm not just talking about the people that we lived around. I'm talking about the people that we knew. And I'm not even talking about my family. I'm talking about people that also were our neighbors that we lived geographically around, but also people who went to our church. Let me just tell you a little bit about how selfless these neighbors were. We had neighbors that saw during this bad snowstorm that Deanne needed to get to the hospital. And so what they did was they shoveled the driveway many times right up until the snow was gone. We had selfless neighbors. We had neighbors who would come and take care of Faith and Sean so that Deanne could be with me in the hospital. We had many people that dropped off meals. We, there were so many things that people dropped off. They, people, people dropped off golf magazines because you probably know that I'm an avid golfer. And they dropped off all kinds of things so that I could have something to do while I was going through this recovery. And you won't believe this, and this is true, is there was actually a group of people, I don't even know how many because it didn't say how many there were, that got together and they purchased a snowblower so, I could, so I'd never have to shovel snow for the rest of my life. And we still have that snowblower. <laughs> I think it's probably on its last legs, but we still have it. Remember, to be a good Samaritan is you need to see everyone God puts in your path as your neighbor. They want, they want and they need your care. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what their status in life is. It doesn't even matter if they're a believer or not. Or even if you don't think they deserve your care or your help, they are your neighbor. I have a last question to ask you. Where can, I want you to ask this question yourself, where can I start to be a neighbor today? Choose to open your eyes to those in need around you. Feel great compassion for them, but don't stop there. Choose to do something to help them. All of us can be neighbors. Let's heed the words of our Lord. Go and do likewise. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is so important to us and so meaningful and it helps us to understand how to live. And Lord, I pray as I prayed before I even started this morning that God, if there's anyone here in this room who's never accepted you, that they would choose to do that today and today would be the day of salvation for them. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would look around for those people in need, our neighbors, and we would choose to not only see them, feel compassion for them, we would choose to do something to help them. Lord, thank you so much for your, this opportunity we've had to open your word today. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.